Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeffrey Wu with the HVMN Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. And I'm super, super excited to be speaking with the author of a book that I, the most recent book that I've read, which I think all of us should be reading and considering, uh, the author of The Immortality Key, Brian Morescu. Great to have you on the program. Awesome to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for being on the program. We actually had a little bit of IT issues scheduling this the first time around, but we took advantage of that trouble and made some silver lining from it. But we actually had a really nice kind of pre-interview conversation. So I think that's helped us get a better understanding of, I think, your interests and a little bit of where our audience is going. So I think this will be a fun conversation. So maybe to kick off, and I think there's like a number of different layers we can talk about from the anthropology, to the archaeochemistry, to the future of humanity. I just want to talk about some parallels in terms of our audience, which I know is very attuned to taking a multidisciplinary approach, looking at human enhancement, anti-aging, kind of looking a little bit more forward. I think what really impressed me reading your book here was just like really grasping how multidisciplinary and how many like years of training and prep work it took to bring together language, ancient classics, chemistry, all these different disciplines that no one really like puts together these days. And instead of not necessarily putting it forward, it's like really pointing it back towards history. But I think a kind of interesting other parallel to, to, to take from that is that even though that you know one might be looking at sort of future or past, we're all looking for the same truth, which is kind of like human meaning and, and potentially like immortality. So a lot of just interesting paths on this journey of intellectual pursuit, intellectual interest. So wanted to touch base on the multidisciplinary approach here. Okay, so you know the book is the past 12 years of my life trying to crack the best kept secret in history which is not fancy marketing. That's what one of the leading religious scholars of the 20th century, Houston Smith, uh, it's the phrase that he used to refer to the mysteries of Eleusis, which is like this, this ancient spiritual capital that called to everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius and the rest of the folks from Athens and Rome who were interested in finding immortality. I mean, that, that is to say like the actual religion of our ancestors. And there was a, a controversial theory from the 1970s that it was nothing less than psychedelics that gave these people meaning. And there's the distinct possibility that that same psychedelic or some kind of recipe actually made its way into early Christianity too. But I mean, the only way to crack that nut is not just by looking at dusty books and not just by talking to biblical scholars, uh, but by getting your hands dirty, going out in the field, and talking to you know, 15, 20 different disciplines to try and figure out and triangulate all this data to come up with one coherent explanation for how that may have been possible. I mean, essentially combining the very best of the sciences with the very best of the humanities to look way back into our ancient past. But the whole reason I did this is really to look forward. And what does this mean for the future of pharmacology, the future of medicine, the future of religion in a very real way for billions of people, the future of society, because if this is the roots of Western civilization, what does it mean for our democracy today? I mean, so like very, very big questions. Let's talk as much as we can in the next hour and a half here about some of these big questions. I think, again, if I think all our, all our listeners are fairly intellectual and I think there is that kind of day to day, how do we make money to have our livelihoods? But ultimately, I think we're all trying to search for truth. And 
I grew up not religious, so but I was always very curious about why billions of people, you know, follow these holy books. And one interesting realization was that like it was hard for me to connect to like a like a burning talking bush or like these very magical things that like seem just as realistic as Aragorn, like in finding, defending a magic ring or, you know, dwarves, you know, making gold or, or all these characters, right? Like it was because I didn't have, a, you know, some teaching that said, hey, this is real and this is a fiction. They all seem like equally arbitrary to me. I'm curious in terms of your upbringing, your, your history here in terms of like the previous 12 years, but it really seemed like it was kind of a lifetime of experiences and learning that brought you to position to even actualize on this journey. I, I think you kind of brushed over like the 12 years of work in the, not to say that's light, but it's just like, it was like impressive that you had such a deep knowledge of the classics. You can actually read and talk in ancient Greek and Sanskrit and actually interface with, you know, MIT chemists to actually interface with actually doing uh, mass spec analysis on these ancient, you know, chalices. Can you identify some of these childhood moments or these things that like led you down this intellectual path? Yeah. So that's the prequel. I didn't want to spoil it, Jeff, but that, that's, that's the prequel here. So I, I mean, in some ways this begins when I was 14 as a total accident, I was invited on a scholarship into this prep school to study with the Jesuits. And after four years with them, I had then had 13 years of Catholic school. So I was a pretty hardcore Catholic growing up. Uh, and at some point I was going to church every Sunday uh, and it wasn't anything that I ever questioned in any meaningful way before the Jesuits. And so I'm there at 14 and I'm learning Latin and I'm learning Greek and I'm, I'm reading the New Testament in the original language for the first time. And I start to have all these questions because on the one hand I'm reading Homer and the Greek of Homer and Plato and uh, all the all the greatest minds of the Western world. And then at the same time, you look in the New Testament in the original language and it's the same characters. It's the it's the same script. It's the same sacred language. Right. And to this day is still a sacred language, at least in the Greek Orthodox Church. And immediately I was just, you know, I, it occurred to me that, you know, why don't classicists study the Bible? You know, that like even even today, if you think about and it all comes back to these silos. Right. And this multi disciplinary search for answers. If you go and try and find answers to this stuff, you, you have the classicists on the one hand who study the secular literature and you have the theology departments and the divinity schools and the seminaries who study it from a different perspective. What if you combine that and use the literature and the academy of the ancient world to apply everything they know to a very theological lens? I mean, when you do that, the Jesus of the New Testament takes on entirely new flavor. For me, it, it takes on a very pagan flavor. Uh, the Eucharist is less of an innovation than a modification or a play on something that had been at work in the ancient world, which is to say all these sacraments. Uh, the ancient world speaks a lot of these sacraments. And so, you know, all the sacraments that I knew growing up, I mean, you know, I took communion every Sunday and I went through reconciliation. I got confirmed when I was like 10 years old and didn't really know what was happening. But, you know, all those years of Catholic school kind of built up to the point where when I started discovering these mysteries and realizing that there were sacraments in the pagan world, too, that there were sacraments, potentially psychedelic, that the Greeks may have taken, it, it all kind of came together. And I realized there was a continuity and scholars referred to it as the pagan continuity hypothesis. This idea that 
Christianity wasn't born overnight, but borrowed a lot of the motifs and rituals that come from classical Greece and maybe much, much further than that. I mean, deep into prehistory, maybe tens of thousands of years. I mean, so that's it's a very long view of history that that reframes the biggest religion in the world, which is Christianity. Yeah, I think it might be worth having a quick survey on that pagan continuity hypothesis before going a little bit further down the line. But just to give our listeners who might not have a chance to read, read have read the book yet, I, I think in just in terms of the expanse of something like Sapiens that covered like human history, I would make the parallel argument that I think your book is a very broad, ambitious book that tries to cover the foundations of Western civilization and Western religions, right? Like, I mean, you're trying to really connect the dots across multiple uh, civilizations, multiple religions, and how these things go together. So not to overflatter you here, but like, can you give us a quick survey here in terms of how these blocks come together? Uh, and then we can pick apart and kind of dive into some of these sections. So in, um, quickly, I, I, so I use psychedelics as you know as as a motif through which to analyze all this stuff so if if you think of the ancient world in terms of drugs and psychedelics it, it seems like a like a weird thing that could tie together twelve thousand years of history but it's it's the lens that that i use to unpack a lot of history and i i love sapiens and i love jared diamond's work i'm sure a lot of your listeners have either heard or read guns germs and steel i mean i like the idea of looking back into history and finding something that could tie a lot of pieces together. Not, not that psychedelics are the one thing that did it, but it's a very overlooked part of history. And uh, the specialization that happens in the academy is just a big part of that. There's a blind spot when it comes to drugs. Uh, Norman Oller was this German journalist who wrote uh, this, this great book, uh, Blitz, uh, Drugs in the Third Reich, about the use of amphetamines in Nazi Germany. And a very, you know, gold standard historian came out in the wake of that book a couple of years ago and said that it's really impressive what a journalist, not a historian, but what this journalist had done, which is by using drugs, you know, you're uncovering things that an outsider might see that within those silos of the academy might not necessarily be pulled together. So, I mean, focusing on drugs, I went back and found early evidence for the fermentation of beer at Gobekli Tepe, which is this giant megalithic site in southern Turkey from about 12,000 years ago. The Smithsonian has called it like, like the world's first temple. And so from the very beginning of civilization, it's that moment when we go from hunting and gathering to settled agricultural life, there you find beer, which I don't think is, is accidental. It seems like, like beer uh, had this sacramental quality to it. And the German Archaeological Institute speculates that it was uh, may be used in these ecstatic ceremonies for the living to interact with the dead, which is kind of where religion comes from. It, it's that, the, that, that desire to connect with those that we've lost, to, to ask the, the question of where we're going when we die, you know, is there an afterlife? And you see that 12,000 years ago, oddly enough, connected to beer. So fast forward many thousands of years uh, past the high civilizations of Egypt, which has a sacred pharmacology, Sumeria, which has tales about beer, and it lands in Greece, where again, you see this beer sacrament, uh, which in Greek is called the kukion. And it's kind of this, it was used seemingly to connect with the dead, to have visions of the goddess, to become immortal. This is how the ancients talked about it. Fast forward a little bit more, and you have this god Dionysus, another sacrament of wine, maybe spiked with all kinds of drugs, 
that wasn't just a party drug, but a way to, to commune with the God himself uh, and to commune with nature and the cosmos and all this crazy imagery that we have in the ancient literature. Fast forward again, and there's Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus in, in that sense, it's really the, the continuity of thousands and thousands of years. And it sounds weird, but of brewing beer and mixing up psychedelic wine or, or, or at least very funky wine. Uh, so, I mean, the Eucharist doesn't come out of nowhere. It fits within a tradition that is very old and very rich. rich. Yeah. And I think speaking towards just not growing up with a religious tradition, reading your book and just piecing together the history, the actual you know record here, it makes me much more empathetic towards understanding how people would, you know, uh, would belong and, and, and ascribe so much life meaning towards these cults or these religious groups, right? Because I think if you did not grow up in these traditions, it's kind of like, oh, this arbitrary story is just as fantastical as Scientology, as Viking, Odin, and Thor, just as arbitrary as Zeus and, and Mars and what, you know, the, kind of the Greek Roman gods. But then if you actually trace one, the history and the stories of their time. And then two, if you actually have something as potent as psychedelic experience to really create a visceral subjective experience, I empathize so much more with the religious experience now because I think it's like, oh, I I maybe can understand what some of these apostles or these acolytes, these early adopters of this new group or this new religion, I actually can empathize with their, their lived experience. So I'm curious from you coming from a Catholic school upbringing, how does this now reflect your upbringing from uh, as someone that has been kind of in the old school Catholic dogma? If, if anything, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's enhanced my faith or maybe, you know, uh, reinvigorated something that, I mean, I'll be honest, has, has come and gone in my life. There are moments when I feel very, very Catholic. There are moments when I feel very removed from it. I mean, you mentioned I studied Sanskrit, so I studied the Vedic tradition and I studied yoga for a long time and I studied the, the mystical disciplines in Judaism and Islam. I mean, I studied at some point, I studied as much as I could. Uh, and then I always find myself coming back to these roots and, and these what if questions, you know, but, but what if there, there's something that connects all these seemingly disparate faiths? And the one thing I keep coming back to is lived experience. I mean, the word you said is absolutely what convinced me there was something here, visceral. It, when, I, when I started reading the early uh, psychopharmacological literature that was coming out of Johns Hopkins University and the psilocybin experiments 12 years ago, that's the moment this book was born because I was reading about atheists who were having God experiences. And some of the volunteers would describe their one and only dose of psilocybin as among the most meaningful in their lives. And today that figure is 75%, at least in terms of the, the Hopkins experiments. I mean, so it's crazy to think that three in four people you know, lay down over the course of a few hours and essentially find, if not the meaning of life, some kind of meaning that connects them to their loved ones and to the cosmos. And an atheist will even say God. This this woman I profile in the book, Dinah Bazer, talks about her experience as being bathed in God's love. And that's from an atheist. And so and it's it's circumstantial and doesn't really mean anything in the abstract. But again, if you connect it back to what little testimony we have from these ancient mysteries and all these clues and hints in the literature and in the artifacts and now in the science that we have. This compelling story starts to emerge that that, that visceral experience was the thing. I mean, for, for many people, I don't know how many, I don't know how wide it, widespread it was, but it, it seems to me that the, the most 
uh, transformative moment in Western civilization, right? That Last Supper that took a pagan world and made it into a Christian world. I mean, seemingly overnight in the course of a couple hundred years, there was something going on there. And I think the earliest Christians would, would have looked to that event and tried to reclaim a very, very powerful experience that made them want to die for this faith. And we don't really have all the answers for why that's the case, but this religion spoke to people. It had to be something extraordinarily powerful. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new Keto Food Bar and they're yummy, they're delicious. And I wanna make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code Jeff 10. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero. Jeff 10 for a 10% discount on the Keto Food Bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread. We got chocolate chunk. And of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast. I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla as grab and go bars when I'm biking, when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So these are certified organic. They actually are yummy. They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant, but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike glycemic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors. So they actually have flat glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially it's a, a fasting mimetic, but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. Why is this unique? So why well, I don't think I am that unique. I don't know. I just think I, I was, if, if it's one thing, I was just patient and, and waiting for the evidence to kind of catch up with the theory. So, you know, a lot of what I follow is this controversial book from 1978, The Road to Eleusis. And that in and of itself was this multidisciplinary effort from Gordon Wasson, the ethnomycologist, and Albert Hoffman, the guy who discovers LSD, and Carl Ruck, who at the time was the chair of classics at Boston University. So Carl's the only surviving member of that trio. He's now 85 years old, still at Boston University. But it was very controversial, I think partly because of the lack of scientific data to help support this. And also, essentially, I mean, at, at its root, they were claiming that the drafters of the blueprints of Western civilization were, were tripping balls when they were creating democracy in the sciences. So th that didn't go well in 1978. When I picked it up in 2007 in, in earnest, it was that psychopharmacology that I found really interesting. And so I could have written the book in 2009 and 2010, and it would have been a book comparing the experiences of psilocybin volunteers with the very little testimony that survived from ancient Greece. And that, that didn't quite cut it for me. So I, I waited a few years and it was a process of me just spending nights and weekends studying this stuff. And then this article from Andrew Coe at MIT comes along in 2014 and he discovers this ancient cache of wine, the world's oldest wine cellar in Galilee, the same Galilee where, where Jesus 
uh, would be preaching the gospel. So Andrew Coe discovers this wine in 1700 BC, and the chemical analysis shows that it spiked. It spiked with lots of different plants which is, and spices, which is, which is interesting. And so it stands for the proposition that ancient wine was nothing like the wine of today. And so I could have written that book in 2015, maybe. And so you have some of the, you know, the circumstantial evidence of the psychopharmacology. Now here's the archaeochemistry. But, you know, I wanted to be even more patient and wait for some of these details to fall into place. And then in 2018, I sold the book to the publisher in New York. And that's when I figured it, it made sense to get people on the record and to have these just very simple conversations with the excavator in Greece, for example, or the curator of the Greek ceramics at the Louvre or the archivist at the Vatican. I mean, like conversations that I've never read anywhere. And I'm waiting for someone to write this book and just ask very simple questions like in the Vatican. Have you ever seen a manuscript talking about drugs? I asked the Vatican archivist and he hadn't. But he, you know, he, he, he left me in the direction of where I ought to be looking in the Inquisition files. And, and I found some data there that had never been published before. And talking to Andrew Coe, uh, you know, I, I found e even more data in the scientific realm that had been there. And so I just, because I'm an outsider, because I was just like a normal dude, I, th I think it took someone just to, to spend years and years kind of seeing the different data that's falling through the data sphere. Was there an inflection point that was like, okay, I'm ready to pull the trigger? Because like it, with something that's so expansive, you want to make the argument, hey, I need to find the smoking. I need to literally find the holy grail that is talked about, that, uh, that people crusade about. Like, I want to find the holy grail that Jesus used that had like had LSD on it. Like, that that would have been like the absolute smoking gun. So what was the, like, it looks like that is still on the search queue. And then obviously there's like a bunch of catalysts along the way there. What made you pull the trigger in 2020? Two things that we, we can talk about in as much detail as you want, or I can just sketch out the basics. But basically, um, I mean, I love looking at the art and I love going through the Vatican and the Louvre and I love looking at these manuscripts. But, but the thing that really got me in, I guess it was 2018-ish, were these two finds, archaeobotanical finds from 20 years ago. So archaeologists found, you know, actual botanical data for spiked beer and spiked wine that just had gone underreported or almost ignored. And when I came across them and started diligencing them with the likes of Andrew Coe at MIT and others and realized there was something there, maybe not the smoking gun, but what I call proof of concept. And so the proof of concept was this ergotized beer in Spain in, a, in an ancient Greek site that you just don't think of, even intuitively. When you think about this magical potion at Eleusis in Greece, I went to Greece looking for it and the answer I got from the excavator was that there's nothing to be found here because all of the ancient cups and chalices have been cleaned for conservation and you're wasting your time, but isn't it interesting what you're doing? And so it was encouraging on the one hand, but on the other, there was, there was nothing for me to do there. So I wound up you know, digging through these journals and found this site in Spain from which I was able to, to, to read about this ancient beer that had been spiked with ergot, the very same ergot that was hypothesized back in 1978 as kind of like an LSD kind of beer. I mean, we don't know the specifics of the chemistry, but it's the first like hard data to support that crazy theory. I mean, that, that's come along in four decades. I mean, so that was a big turning point for me. And then again, in the journals, I found this ancient specimen of quote unquote psychedelic wine outside Pompeii from the first century AD. 
the right place at the right time where some of the earliest Christians may have come across something like that. And it was, it was wine that was seemingly spiked with opium, cannabis, henbane, and black nightshade. I mean, so all pretty damn psychoactive in the right doses. Now, again, we don't know the specifics of the chemistry or what was happening there, but with those two hits, I, I walk away from this book saying it's proof of concept uh, to, to start to marry all these disciplines for the very first time at the most respected institutions on the planet to take this seriously. And I think that that's kind of where we find ourselves now. There's all these excavation sites and, and these, these rich kind of targets to continue what I've been doing, except now the professionals are there and hopefully with enough funding and attention, we can get it done. Yeah, which is pretty cool because I also keep, you know, a foot in the human performance world, but also a foot in the startup world where you kind of need to have that proof of concept to get the momentum, funding, reputation to actually, you know, scale this effort, which sounds like it, it was kind of like the, the master plan that you had. <laughs> like you had a couple real pieces of science and now you can actually scale that effort where hopefully, you know, millions of people can read and be like, hey, this is this is worth spending time on. I think so. I mean, and, and, and I mean, it was a bet. I, def I definitely took a bet. And it's, it's funny when you ask me that question, now I'm, I'm almost, I'm like second guessing myself, you know, cause I want to, <laughs> I want to write about that smoke. I want to find that smoking gun too, Jeff. But fortunately from the very beginning, I've been hearing from people who want to help. I've been, I've been hearing from folks at different universities. I've been hearing from donors. I've been talking to investors who see the possibility for this and, and the gap or, or, or at least the opportunity, right? The opportunity within academia to marry the humanities and the sciences and to take a comprehensive look at, you know, call it, call it a grail hunt. But what, what it is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's a very genuine process of discovery for what, you know, what motivated our ancestors, the visceral experience. And what we're after is you know, the, the, visceral, the visceral experience that made religion real to them, right? And I think that by, by continuing to dig and test this stuff, I think we're going to find answers at the same time that the psychopharmacology continues to advance towards FDA approval for things like anxiety, depression, end-of-life distress, et cetera. It's happening right now. Oregon just revamped its drug policy laws a week and a half ago. I mean, things are happening in real time, and there's no way I could have predicted that, but the book seems to have landed in a, in a fertile environment. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I would agree with everything you just said there. It feels like, again, it comes full circle where the ancestral search for meaning for why we exist, how we came to be, is the same meaning that we're still figuring out today. And arguably, as we have skyrocketing cases of depression and anxiety, you know, 10% of us Americans are on antidepressants. People, I think, have the sense of malaise or lack of meaning. And I think there's a, you know, interesting social cultural discussions around is that because of religion is became less important in our lives as technology and modernity has replaced some of the meaning finding that religion used to play and can we reintroduce like this notion of meaning or religion in, in a modern context and i think that this actual chemical biological physiological string that you're gluing together from like the early Aleutian mysteries to something that is being studied at john hopkins today might be a very unifying thread that combines like the classics research with what is cutting edge and human performance and physiology today which i think is like a very elegant beautiful story in an era that like, again, like re really, I think resonates with myself as well as I think a lot of people clearly. So let's trace back some of this history here. So 
One of the things that I think struck me as particularly interesting was hearing that Marcus Aurelius was interested in and in, in, in went to Eleusis. And for folks that have been, you know, following along our, our podcast here, we talk a lot, not a lot, but we, we talk about Stoicism. We talk about Marcus Aurelius. We talk about him as being this very serious, cerebral, just very clear-minded thinker, right? Like he, he had a lot of pressure being invaded by the barbarians and he was trying to rationalize and figure out how to stay sane, essentially like calm and sane and, 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 and active under this, this stress. And it was interesting to hear that, you know, this seemingly very rational, clear thinker had a very beautiful experience, some sort of interesting experience at Eleusis. Can you talk about this character, kind of expand about, about Marcus Aurelius and how you might think that Stoicism philosophy might have spawned from something something that was psychedelic? That's a great question. You, you describe Marcus Aurelius very well, by the way. And, and it's, kind of a, it's kind of a paradox, as were, as were the Greeks. I mean, the, the very stoic, practical, skeptical roots that we associate with the ancient Greeks were spread through very irrational, ecstatic, visionary soil, is the, is the, the way that I, that I can put it. I mean, even someone like Marcus Aurelius, he, didn't just, he wasn't just initiated into the ancient mysteries, the, the mysteries of Eleusis in the second century AD, he rebuilt the temple. Those barbarians who came down, the invading Kostovox, they, they, they raised this temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess Demeter in the second century. Marcus Aurelius rebuilt it. And I think there's a reason he rebuilt it. And there's a reason that centuries before him, Cicero, another Roman, or I mean, right, like not Greeks. It started as a Greek thing. It was picked up by the Romans, including Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, and some of these Stoics. I mean, Cicero about Eleusis, I think this is the best way to capture it. Uh, he says that uh, Eleusis was the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced. I mean, so all, all the stuff that we love about the, the, the roots of Western civilization, from democracy, the arts and sciences and literature and philosophy, and this dialogue and you know everything that, that we inherited from them was kind of seen as an adjunct to Eleusis. At least if you take Mar you know Cicero seriously, he's saying that Eleusis was the glue that held it all together. And he wasn't the only one. After Marcus Aurelius, again, there's this continuity for centuries. Uh, so Eleusis survives until the fourth century AD when it's finally obliterated. What the barbarians couldn't do in the second century, they got away with under the Christianized Roman Empire in the fourth century. But just before that moment, there's a Greek historian who records this testimony of this guy, Praetextatus, that I talk about. And he was this Roman hierophant nobleman, made the long pilgrimage all the way from Rome to Eleusis, which was not easy, to meet this goddess, to drink the sacrament, meet the goddess, become immortal. And he's saying to the Roman emperor at the time, who just wants to get rid of this stuff, he says that to kill the mysteries, to kill Eleusis is to kill us. And not, not just the Greeks, not the Romans, but that, that to do away with the mysteries is to do away with us, uh, which meant that has to mean that it was bound up with like our very nature of existence. There was something that was revealed at Eleusis, not something that you read about, not something that you were taught in any kind of didactic way. Again, the way we think about philosophy, but something like supernatural, something irrational that was witnessed there in the mind's eye that convinced them that there was life after death, that convinced them of this concept of eternity, longevity in the moment, right? That they would truly live forever. I mean, the, these, these guys were early Ray Kurzweil's. They, they, were they were looking for this stuff. And here comes Marcus Aurelius. And I think he saves it because 
you know, we don't know exactly what happened in that temple, but it was something extraordinary. And it was the culminating experience of a lifetime is, is how Karl Ruck describes it. When you read the psychedelic literature, again, it's circumstantial, but you read very similar things about a once in a lifetime glimpse of eternity that finally, you know, just kind of makes life worth living. Yeah. And I think it's like, if you read, and I feel like reading like, you know, Marcus releases journals and meditations, it feels like you get to understand him as a person, right? He feels like a very sober, he's not some like crazy person. So the the fact that he thinks something magical there, I I think, I think, again, it's very circumstantial, but clearly there's something powerful there that probably wasn't, as you're saying, like some, I think some of the hypotheses, like not some play or some, you, you read some secret text, right? Like there's clearly something super powerful happening there. Right. If you assume that these are sober, serious people. So we talked about ergot a lot. I don't think, I don't think we explained and, 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 and defined it. Can you talk about ergot, uh, the goddess the Demeter, just to summarize why potentially this ergot, this kind of, kind of spike beer might be so powerful? It's a very elegant theory. And again, we, we don't know the specifics of the chemistry, but so ergot is this naturally occurring fungus that you will find growing on barley and wheat and rye. It's, it's more common on rye, but you do find it on barley. So when Albert Hoffman was reading the hymn to Demeter in the 1960s and 70s, and he finds out, like classicists do, that this ancient potion, the kukion, the mixed sacrament, was made of barley, water, and mint, you know, the uh, light bulbs start to go off to Albert Hoffman because where he discovers LSD is an ergot. So ergot is synthesized from cultures of, of, of ergot, this very natural fungus. You know, it wasn't the psilocybin-containing fungus. It wasn't DMT. You know, he focused on on ergot. And I think partially just because it's so natural, it's so, it's so common. And I talked to a beer scientist in Munich, Germany. I flew there just to talk to Martin Zarnkow about ergot. And again, he was completely unsurprised by the hypothesis, like unfazed because it's still so common. And he was telling me, even in the modern brewing process, you got to be really careful to sift out the ergot during during the harvest because, it, I mean, it's toxic. You know, it's, when, when you think of a good psychedelic, the first thing that comes to your mind should not be ergot. I mean, it is, it's highly toxic. It, it, it was known across the Middle Ages as, as uh, St. Anthony's fire. It would result in these fits and convulsions and even gangrene at times. It's occasionally associated with the Salem witch trials and all these hysteria and mania events uh, that are recorded in history. And, you know, so it's, it's, this just, it's, it's full of lore and legend, this fungus, but it also has these magical alkaloids. And we don't know how they may have done it, but Hoffman suspected that if he did it by accident, essentially in 1938, that maybe someone in the ancient past figured out some kind of way to extract some kind of powerful alkaloid from ergot. And I just, I love the elegance of the theory because it's, you know, ergot and grain are, are things that potentially go back very far in our story. And I mentioned Gobekli Tepe, which, which I love because it paints a very long natural story about this relationship between grain and ergot. Yeah, and I think that's, maybe we should just go back all the way towards the agricultural revolution, which you hypothesize could be actually the beer revolution. And I think that's something that with gun germs and seal and sapiens, I think you bring up an interesting point. Was it beneficial at the time to go tend to crops when you could be a hunter-gatherer? And if you look at the historical record, the individual hunter-gatherer seemed to be much more robust and probably happier than the farmer. So the cost-benefit to 
be a farmer seemed pretty high unless there was some potential acute benefit, which may be this beer or this ergotized beer, or it could be that you could store food and, and potentially scale up an organization. Probably some combination of both where the specialization of labor that agriculture enables you, but maybe that specialization was predicated by beer. Can you talk about that hypothesis? I think that's, that's, I would say like a very, a, a less known hypothesis, right? I think most people say, Hey, hunter gatherers went to agriculture because that it enabled some specialization of labor. But I think it's interesting that maybe people just wanted to get like drunk or high. And maybe that was like the acute reward. Can we, can we explain that hypothesis a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a fun one and an unanswered question. And this, and this debate goes back to at least the 1950s. I read about the, this debate between J.D. Sauer and Robert Braidwood in my book, the, the beer versus bread debate. Was it beer or was it bread? What's, what was humanity's first biotechnology? And the bigger question is, why did we leave the caves for the cities? Because as you mentioned, you know, it doesn't intuitively make sense. In fact, Jared Diamond refers to the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago as the, 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 the worst mistake in the history of the human species. And the reason being, as hunter-gatherers, we were tall, happy, resilient, healthy. We go into specialized labor, settled agriculture, and we get shorter. And, you know, living with our livestock for the first time, we're exposed to infectious disease uh, at a historic rate that never happened, as far as we can tell. It's, just, it's not an intuitive thing, and even less intuitive that at that moment, as we're transitioning from hunting and gathering to settled agriculture, we find this giant sanctuary. It just doesn't make sense that Gobekli Tepe and the breadbasket there north of the Fertile Crescent just comes out of nowhere. I, I compare it to like finding out that your great grandparents are, are trading Bitcoin or something like that. I mean, it's just, it just it's, it's thousands of years before you expect giant architecture and what seem to be really developed ideas about God and the ancestors, you know, that doesn't really appear until the high civilizations uh, of like ancient Egypt and Sumeria, which is like six, seven thousand years later. And so here's this site, and uh, I mentioned that we find beer there, which, which probably isn't an accident. And so it raises the possibility that maybe we first started growing the grain, not to eat it, but to drink it. And when I talked to Martin Zarnkow about this, he explained to me why that makes sense and why it's not a crazy idea, that, that beer was the engine of civilization, that the agricultural revolution is the beer revolution, potentially. I mean, think about it. Beer is safer to drink than water. Uh, and this was the case in the Middle Ages. This is the case in some parts of the world now. I mean, you know, water is easily contaminated and it becomes brackish. The, the, the fermentation inside beer is actually healthier and safer to drink than water. It's also very easy to do, which was a total mind blower to me. Um, when you think about beer brewing, and Martin Zarnkow was talking to me about this, he asked me, like, what do you think of? And I said, you know, giant vats and heat and you know, all this mashing and malting. And he said, no, 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 no. The, the way you brew beer is you take some crops out of the earth, throw them in water. And I said, well, what about the yeast and the, no, no, you don't need heat. Uh, you don't need to crush it the way you crush uh, grain for dough. And you don't need to do anything else because the, the, the microorganisms uh, on, on, your, on your microbiome uh, will have enough fungi that they will potentially start fermenting naturally, which is like a mind blower to me. So there's actually a pretty decent argument that that we start it with beer. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I like it's 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 very elegant how how natural and how easy it is to create beer. I think it was interesting from that lens. So I think just stepping back, we're we're going from 
argument around beer versus agricultural revolution and how that might tie into Lucis and, and, and the Greek mysteries. But before going further down the Western path, you touched upon going East with Soma, with some of the broader, I guess, acceptance in Western, Acad Western Academy about psychedelics being used as a foundational component of Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy. And one of the things that I've been pondering about is some of the, I would say the, I guess, convergent evolution of Zen Buddhism with Stoicism. I think there's a very interesting overlaps there. And I think there seems to be like a focus on around meditation along that Eastern path. It seems like you, you focus all of your work going West. I'm curious, and, and probably you have some thoughts that wasn't you know published in the book here. What do you think, if you have some ideas of how potentially some of these early insights around ergotized beer, maybe spiked wines, did this travel East? Did this influence and maybe drive some convergent evolution in terms of philosophy and religion on the East, as we describe on the West. It's, I mean, yeah, I, I could have written a book that was twice the length, and I, I, <laughs> I focused, I focused on on Western civilization, but I, I try and spend at least a few paragraphs talking about this notion of Indo-European, and and for those who don't know that Indo-European is is the most successful family of languages in the history of our species. It's it's natively spoken by like almost half the planet. And as the name implies, you know, part of it went west in, into Europe, part of it went east into uh, what is today Iran and, and India and the subcontinent. But we don't know where it begins. And there, another great debate about what Proto-Indo-European was and where the homeland was, the Urheimat. Some people think it's in Anatolia. Some people think it's between the, the Black and Caspian Seas, sort of where um, Kazakhstan meets Ukraine today. We don't really know where it was, but we do know, or at least what Colin Renfro speculates is that it's very, very old. Maybe not as old as Gobekli Tepe, but the, the prevailing view is that, you know, Proto-Indo-European basically dates to the Bronze Age. So something more like 3000 BC, not like, uh, not 9000 BC, but Colin Renfrew at Cambridge University does ask big questions about the spread of Proto-Indo-European, both East and West. And if it was going West, thousands and thousands of years earlier than expected. And there's some DNA evidence to suggest that it was where the Minoans came from. The Minoans came from Anatolia, uh, was recently shown in, in some DNA analysis. Is it possible the same thing was happening East? Uh, because we do have two big sacraments that occur in the Eastern traditions. There's the Soma of the Vedic tradition in India and, there, and there's Haoma in the, the Persian tradition that came from Avestan. And it's very, very controversial. And I haven't seen any, any hard botanical or chemical evidence to support it. But there have been lots of people speculating that just as we speculate about ancient Greece, that either Soma or Haoma or both were psychedelic. And, you know, this all comes from the 1970s when people were asking big questions about this stuff. Uh, but if that's the case, is it possible a tradition like that began thousands of years earlier than expected? And that maybe influenced Buddhism and other things. And it just, it raises this, this profound possibility that these magical sacraments were floating all over Eurasia, which, which, you know, maybe I'll spend my second book talking about that. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to read that. And I think some of the modern science looking at MRIs for a brain that's under a psychedelic experience versus an experienced meditator, the MRI scans look very, very similar. So to me, it suggests that there are potential multiple paths to get to this kind of spiritual state. And can it be something like prayer meditation, which 
takes a lot of effort to get there? Or can you shortcut and get your mind blown within the Lucis or like the original Eucharist that gets you there? And like, you know, it, it is, it has a much bigger, bigger viral factor, right? Just thinking from like a Silicon Valley product perspective, if you're just making a product of religion, it's like, do you want to train 10 years to train your mind to a meditation state that can tap into some of these more, I guess, ego death and, and, and the sense of dying before you're dying. So when you're dying, you're, when you're actually dying, you're not scared. That kind of sentiment that I think was reported in the John Hopkins study and as described by Marcus Aurelius, the product of a drink or a ceremony that gets you there in one day versus 10 years. That seems to be a better product to, to maybe overly practice something as spiritual as religion. Well, see that this is why it's controversial. So without commercializing it, I mean, I raised, I raised that question myself because others were raising that question. I mean, Houston Smith, who called this the best kept secret in history, he experienced mescaline and psilocybin in the 1960s. He called it the greatest cosmic homecoming he'd ever experienced. Aldous Huxley was writing about this. Alan Watts was writing about this. I mentioned them in my intro for a reason. I mean, and Alan Watts quite a, quite a, wh a while ago was asking these questions. And it even occurred to him, he was anticipating the counter arguments. And he said, you know, it, it seems silly. You know, it, it reduces us to like chemical automata, the, 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 this notion that enlightenment can be turned on at the flip of a switch. I mean, at the same time, if you just talk to people who've been through these experiments at Hopkins and NYU and other ca carefully programmed uh, settings, you, you hear mystical language. And the researchers themselves will talk about the mystical experience. They use that phrase that is at the core of these experiences. Is that a genuine mystical experience? Is it mystico-mimetic? Is it just a psychological breakthrough? I mean, I think we get lost in the jargon and just miss the fact that you can sit down with an atheist in Dinah Baser and she'll tell you that her one dose was like being bathed in God's love, an experience she's never forgotten, an experience that is imprinted, imprinted onto her psyche indelibly. I mean, this, this stuff matters to people and it's not an either or, it's not that you, know, you do absolutely nothing and then have a heroic dose of LSD or psilocybin or mescaline. I think it, it means that these are tools, the way they were probably used at Eleusis or maybe early Christianity. These are tools. I mean, sacraments exist for a reason. This, the, you know, these, there are sacraments that have that shortcut effect that absolutely cannot be divorced from all these sacred containers and a good meditative practice, a good contemplative practice. That's why when you ask me like how this affects my faith, I mean, I, I see a, a psychedelic sacrament, whatever that is, as something to enhance training, as something that's, that's only really valuable to someone who's prepared for it and only valuable to someone who's been training. Whatever your tradition is, whatever makes sense to you, I mean, if you take it seriously enough, then the, the psychedelic experience could be a real benefit to them. Yep, that rings true in terms of my current perspective as well. So let's go, let's go back west. So what is Jesus like? Like, what is he now, right? Like, I think you make a very compelling argument or, or, or survey of the literature comparing him with a lot of pagan inspiration with Dionysus. He likely was like a real human. Obviously, there's, you know, the, the tradition that he is the son of God and, you know, a, a deity. How does your research inform you of Jesus, the, the historical figure? What is he to you now, given all the, the corpus of information that you're uncovering? So Jesus to me is, is a Rorschach test. I think that you, you know, you, you look, you look at Jesus and you see what you want to see, man. And, and, and I think that's been happening from the very beginning. I think the one thing I'm confident saying 
is that there was never one Jesus. I mean, today you can look around and find 33,000 denominations of Christianity. I think we, we often overlook that. It's not just the Catholics and the Protestants and the Orthodox and the Evangelicals. I mean, there's all kinds of grays in there and different syncretic traditions that you know span into the tens of thousands. I think at the very beginning, it was very similar. There was no agreement over who this Jesus was. And I think there wasn't one coherent, you know, monolithic idea of what that Eucharist was. So for me, when I read the Gospel of John, and I write about this in the book based on pretty standard biblical scholarship from a guy called Dennis McDonald, who wrote the Dionysian Gospel, there's a way to read John's Gospel that reads like, uh, reads like Dionysus. I mean, a lot of the things that occur there are things that any Greek speaker at the time at the end of the first century AD would have said, oh, the son of God, that's Pais Dios, right? That's Dionysus, who is referred to in line one, line one of Euripides the Bacchae as the son of God, Pais Dios. Another God who introduces wine into his mysteries and sends people into these ecstatic visionary fits, mainly women, by the way. Here comes Jesus introducing this, not just any kind of wine, but magical wine, right? The very first miracle in John's gospel is the famous wedding at Cana, water to wine miracle. You can walk inside the Louvre and the largest painting in the largest art museum in the world is a painting of the wedding at Cana from Veronese. And I, I went there just to look at it with fresh eyes because, the, I mean, to your question, the Jesus I was finding was a very Dionysian Jesus. I mean, that was a Dionysian miracle. Uh, biblical scholars, classical scholars will refer to that as the signature miracle of Dionysus because the tradition had existed for centuries that Dionysus was the guy who changed water to wine for a purpose. Now at the wedding at Cana, everyone's already drunk, by the way, which is a really important part of the story. And it's there in the Greek in John's gospel. And so it raises a big question. Why would Jesus create, manufacture a bunch of magical wine for people who are already drunk. So don't tell me that you can't have, you know, a good time in early Christianity. I mean, Jesus emerges as like a party God almost <laughs> in, in John's gospel. It's something to take seriously. And then he introduces this Eucharist in very pagan terms about, you know, munching on his flesh and, and sucking down his blood. I mean, almost like vampiric imagery. I mean, there's nothing Jewish about that. I mean, the Jesus I found again and again was this very pagan God, who uh, the whole point of which was to achieve communion with him in a very real way, to become a God yourself, not to pray to him, not to worship him, but to become him. And I think that's how the Greeks would have read it. Yeah. And I think that's like, I, I, I think that section was like a, a, one of the most interesting parts of, of, of your book here, because I think you just start seeing the institutionalization of what is one of the most powerful entities in the world today, the Catholic Church. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as you, trace some of the history of picking the proper gospels that make it to the official, you know, dogma. Can you expound upon it a little bit in terms of like kind of overviewing the gospel of Mary, why that didn't get in there? You know, again, like for folks who might think this is blasphemous, like there's like, again, for me, without being raised in a religious tradition, I'm just, I get that there is some politics with any human endeavor, right? Some, some humans, whether they're divinely inspired or not, were, putting together the substrate of a dominant religion that has shaped modern civilization. Can you talk us through some of the thoughts there? Do you empathize with these early church founders as people, as institution builders? Was it something that just was to build a foundation that 
accrued power to them. So they feel like they could be better custodians of this future religion that they, you know, I think generally believed was positive. Can we unpack kind of the, the given the, the lens that you're looking at Jesus as kind of this amalgamation, how did that unfold into, you know, a lot of the shaping of Western religion today? Great. You're the first person to ask me that question, man. That's a great, great question. I mean, it sounds weird, but I do, I do empathize with the church fathers, as, as weird as that sounds. And I, I read, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the gold standard scholarship on this stuff. I love the way Elaine Pagels writes about this at Princeton University. She's uh, one of the world's leading scholars of Gnosticism and some of these books that didn't make it into the New Testament. And I don't know why John's did, by the way, because John's is super weird and full of plenty of, of magic and mystery for anybody who's interested. But there were other gospels full of the, those visionary experiences, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example where you find a slightly different Jesus. And you find a Jesus who is inviting, inviting you again, not to worship him, but to be, to be one with him, to find the Christhood within and to find the kingdom of heaven everywhere and in everyone. In, 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 in the Gospel of Thomas, there's this great line that the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and we do not see it. The, the idea that it's not out there somewhere, there's, there's no such thing as an afterlife because there's no after. It's, it's, the, it's the present of the here and now, which raises profound questions about longevity, et cetera, because if, if, you, if you ask the ancient mystics, you know, the only place you're going to find it is here. It's, it's not so much about extending physical life, but using the, the technologies at our disposal, whether that's a, a potent psychedelic or meditation or a combination of like 30 different things, but, but using that technology to discover the kingdom, to discover eternity in the here and now, the sense of timelessness. That is the immortality key, by the way. And that, that's why I titled the book the way it is. And it, it's not immediately apparent from the gospels, but it's, it's the reading that you'll find there. And even in the gospel of John, when he says, anyone who drinks my blood has eternal life. In John 6, 53, it's, uh, it's in the present tense. Whoever drinks my blood, he says in Greek, has eternal life. There isn't so much talk about this life after death, which is very popular today. But again, for the, for the mystics, it was encountering that divine within, which you'll find in the Gospel of Thomas. And it, it was encountering the divine in these visionary exercises, which you will find in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, another one of those gospels that was found at the end of the 19th century. Now, these don't make it in to the New Testament, which doesn't come together until the fourth, fifth centuries AD. But I say I sympathize with the church fathers because you know, the, this idea of like these secret sacraments and hidden ingredients and oral traditions, I mean, they just don't lend themselves way to, to, to organized religion. You know, organized religion is about getting butts in the seats. It's about doctrine and dogma. It's about, you know, trying to make this thing survive. You know, Christianity was not going to survive as an illegal cult, which is what it was for 300 years. It's not going to survive as an oral tradition. And so, I mean, I don't think there was any grand conspiracy to stamp this out. I, I do think that there was concern about orthodoxy and the sense of having just one vision for who this guy was. And what you find time and again is that it's hard. It's hard to agree on who Jesus was. And, and it's hard to come up with, you know, a doctrine that everybody can agree with because we don't and we probably never will. And so what do we do with this Jesus? Uh, we're back to the Rorschach test. And I to like riff off of that, I felt like your conversations with folks in the Vatican, they, they seem more open-minded than I think what you expected and what I expected, right? Like it, yeah. it seemed like they were 
quite open to say, hey, like that's an interesting hypothesis. Hey, go go look here. Like you were kind of looking in the wrong spot. Like if you want to talk about witches and drugs, like here's you should look <laughs> this direction. I mean, what is your what what do you make of that? Do you feel like it just people are just much deeper? Like we shouldn't just like overly just like hey these these Catholics they're 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 like full stock just like fully drinking their own Kool Aid. My read of that was that there is some depth and self awareness there in terms of hey like there is some some molding of pragmatism just as what you're saying that. If this was an illegal cult in the Roman Empire, we needed to do some proctization, some institutionalization to like make this actually survive. And I think that makes, again, it makes, when I read this book, it makes me empathize much more towards the building of a religion and a movement that actually persists, right? If you're so idealist and so purist, I don't know if you succeed that way. If you actually can build a coalition make maybe some doctrinal compromises, but now this actually exists and you 90% of your vision comes through, maybe that is the way to like overall quote unquote win in terms of having your ideas get out there. So I'm just curious, like, do you still see that happening today in the Vatican today? Like, is everyone there like a true believer? I mean, clearly like you were able to navigate decently well in these secret archives and having like pretty, it sounds like pretty reasonable responses and, and curious to hear if you've been in communication with those same colleagues and friends after that you published this, where you really, you know, throw a wrench in, in, in some of the historical origins of, you know, their, their central figure. Right. No, you, you phrase that very, very well, Jeff. I think that the folks that I talk to are very practical and I talk to the archivists. I talk to folks at the Pontifical Commission for Sacred Archaeology, which are in charge of all these catacombs. And I talked to the Uffizio Scavi, which is in charge of the necropolis under St. Peter's Basilica. I talked to lots of priests. I considered a lot of these people friends during the research process, and I consider them friends now. And I mean, if you think about it, like realistically, a lot of this is ancient history. I mean, the, the idea that there were these subversive sects that were stamped out, the idea of the Inquisition, I mean, this is nothing new. I wasn't trying to write anything inflammatory. It was more just kind of a, a truth and reconciliation of looking to the role, but the potential of, of drugs in the history of, the, of this church. And decisions were made for all the reasons that, that, that you say. I mean, and, and in many respects, the church won. I mean, there is a Vatican. There's a beautiful Vatican you can go visit. It is still there, one of the world's longest running institutions. It did keep the faith alive. And so I think the big question in the, in the 21st century is how to continue keeping that faith alive. And, you know, I raise these controversial questions about the Eucharist because 69% of American Catholics do not believe in this doctrine of transubstantiation, this doctrine that when you consume the Eucharist, you're actually consuming Jesus, like literally, literally eating flesh and blood. You know, almost 70% of Americans don't believe that. Which is again, I don't think it's that crazy, right? It's like, yeah, again, let's like, yeah, do you really believe that like this magically turns into Jesus's body and blood? It's like, uh, I mean, it's the bread and, and wine, right? It's just like, well, that's, I mean, you know, that's, I don't want to, I mean, again, the Eucharist, that Eucharist, well, you just, I mean, that works for lots of people. I mean, that works for millions of people around the world, right? And, and, and that's fantastic. It works, it works as is. For many, many, many people, it does not. And, and there, you know, the, the church has a crisis on its hands in America and in Europe, and, and people are, are leaving the faith. Here's an opportunity to have a very practical, uh, non-invective discussion about what was what was happening and what this means, and maybe how some of this can be incorporated 
for the faithful today. Like not every Sunday, but the way I, I talk about it to you. I mean, in these carefully programmed sequences where, where maybe your first experience of the psychedelic is after many years of preparation. Maybe it's with your favorite priest or pastor or minister. Maybe it's, it's on, on your deathbed uh, for those, uh, you know, suffering from advanced disease. I mean, I don't know what it looks like, but I, I do think there's an opportunity to take it seriously, at least have a conversation about it and the role of women in the church, which I don't think can be overlooked. I mean, it's time to ask 21st century questions. And I'm, I'm, I, I, think the, the, I think the Vatican can, can meet us in, in that conversation. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the woman topic, actually. I mean, this is a perfect segue. So the, a lot of the priestesses for Eleusis were priestesses, were women. God Demeter was a goddess Demeter, a woman. And then you hear a lot about these witches and, and like the witch hunts and, and of, of the Inquisition. And again, I think it was like just very elegant to, how this all ties together because i think when again someone that's like reasonably well read you hear about these like spots of why were witches even a thing right it's just like if you didn't like glue it together to this tradition it's like again a very elegant narrative that ties so many observations like oh now i understand why the vatican and the inquisition was so afraid of witches because they were kind of the essentially cultists or or, or i guess like offshoots of potential these pagan traditions that were disseminating kind of illegal Eucharists of like the original version of it. Can you talk us through that witch story? I, th I think it's, again, like very elegant how these are very clear symbols in modernity, but they've been obviously been evolved in almost cartoonized, right? Like, oh, I, I see like an old kind of crazy evil woman as a witch. And like, I guess there were some people that got killed maybe unfairly back in the day. But yeah, can you tie through that? And and I think, again, the modernization of religion, of these institutions, what do you speculate? I mean, is there appetite for re-centralizing the role of the feminine in Catholicism? Or is that you think just so like ant antithetical to kind of like the founding principles of Catholicism? No, I think I think Pope Francis is open to that. I'll answer your your last question first. I mean, there, there was a commission to study the, the ordination of women, which didn't arrive at a conclusion. I think it was last year or a couple of years ago. And it's uh, Pope Francis has recommissioned it to ask questions about the role of women in the church, which I, I think is, is a positive step forward. And the why I think it's positive is because when I look into history, I, I do see women carrying this faith. I mean, I went into the catacombs under the streets of Rome to look at frescoes of women consecrating wine in a ceremony that was a mix of a, of a pagan ritual of communing with their dead and a paleo-Christian ritual of communing with their dead, which is to say communing with the martyrs and the saints and, and maybe even Jesus. I mean, these, these two worlds collided under the streets of Rome in the early centuries AD, and women are at the heart of it. It's women who were initiates, which doesn't surprise me because it was women who were mixing the wine, women who were consecrating the kukion at Eleusis, as you mentioned, to these two goddesses, Demeter and Persephone. And even though Dionysus was a male god, it was female followers, the Minads, who were in charge of propagating his religion. And even mainstream historians will look to early Christianity and, and, and remark on how much it appealed to women. It appealed to, to, to women. So it's, you know, it's really hard to avoid that. Now, what happens to these women who are, who are mixing up spiked drinks, potentially? And we know they were because one of the church fathers whom I empathize with, Hippolytus, uh, he writes about women mixing pharmacon 
drugs into their wine in the second to third centuries AD. So, I mean, at least if you look at the literature, we do know some kind of drug sacrament was there. And so, you know, I, I can't piece together every aspect of it for a thousand years, but I, in the later chapters of my book, I take you through what sacred pharmacology looked like in, in Europe. And, and there was one, and there was an association between women and witches and their, their knowledge over, over drugs. In fact, in, in, in Latin, the word for which beneficia comes from the, the Latin word meaning drug and poison. So we, we know that, I mean, even if you think about witches, I mean, over their, their cauldrons, I mean, the thing that witches do best is mix up plants and roots and, and drugs. It's what Circe, the, the high priestess of ancient Greece, was doing in Homer's Odyssey in the 8th, 7th century BC. It stays there all the way through antiquity. It goes all the way into the Inquisition. And I went into the archive of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith inside the Vatican to look for manuscript evidence of women with knowledge of drugs. And I found it, and I, I write about this in, in the last chapter of my book. It was important for me to see the written evidence that there, there were women who were persecuted during the Inquisition for their knowledge of pharmacology, essentially, and, and their, their knowledge of healing and the healing arts. It largely disappeared, right, during, during the Renaissance to, to the point where we think about all these ideas and this idea itself, this conversation is now crazy. And in 1978, it was crazy because we lost that connection to sacred pharmacology. And the women who carried it I think we're a big part of that. And the witch burnings were no small part of it. Yeah, I think that actually brings up an interesting point here, which is that while I think you make a very strong argument that some of the foundational pinnings of Western philosophy potentially might be driven by psychedelics, it does seem fairly clear, clear that the Renaissance, the early Enlightenment, was potentially not driven by psychedelics, potentially driven by coffee or caffeine, as opposed when they move from, from alcohol to caffeine, which is an interesting hypothesis and narrative in of itself. Does that imply that we've evolved outside of psychedelics? Or is that a parallel path? I mean, I'm curious how you break that down. I mean, if psychedelics was so, such an important tool for enlightenment, why weren't the founding fathers of America Maybe they weren't eating mushrooms. Uh, I don't know, right? Like, I, I think it's an interesting continuation of this narrative here because it seemed that, like, I don't know if Einstein or or, or, or Isaac Newton were were eating mushrooms. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if they were, though? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. Just kind of riffing off of the Enlightenment path, where clearly very smart thinkers. I don't know if Da Vinci was on you know mushrooms or not, but clearly some like leading figures of Western evolution. Uh, or Western philosophy and Western civilization didn't don't have seem to have as strong of a ties to psychedelics. Is psychedelics kind of the bootstrapping layer that boosted us into this higher level of rationality, and we don't need that anymore? Or, you know, do we need? Is there some recultivation of going back to ancestral roots that you know that can take us again to the next stage? I think. I mean, I sympathize with with the latter. I mean, you you don't need drugs to find enlightenment. Pretty pretty obviously. I'm not sure Einstein was on drugs. Um, there are geniuses are born, you know, natural born mystics and visionaries and saints have been born across time. And I think they probably always, always will be. And the, these supernatural experiences seem to be fairly common across traditions, across faiths, across time. Uh, so I don't think that's controversial, but it, it does seem to me that psychedelics were one component of the spiritual toolkit that seems to have been there in antiquity 
and then disappeared. And so the, the geniuses of, of the Renaissance came along and maybe the Michelangelo's and Da Vinci's didn't need that. Although we don't know, uh, there was an interesting pipe that was found in Shakespeare's backyard. I mean, if you remember the my epilogue to part one in the book, there is a really interesting pipe. Yeah, there was maybe some cannabis in there. Exactly. There was maybe some cannabis, maybe some cocaine, nicotine, myristic acid, which is indicative of nutmeg, which can be visionary, hallucinogenic at the right dose. So, I mean, who knows? There, You can talk to Freemasons today. And I won't speak out of turn, but there are Freemasons who, who write about the preservation of these psychedelic sacraments in their ceremonies. I mean, so we don't really know where this went. I mean, if it survived, it survived underground in, in secret brotherhoods and sisterhoods and who knows what else. It's a fun story, but I think that they were more common, maybe more accepted or, or maybe more uh, sacredly contained at a place like Eleusis. And we don't have that, but we, what we also don't have today is the enchantment that filled the ancient world. You know, we don't have, we don't go and consult the prophetess every time we have a problem. We go to our therapist, you know, and we don't go into the temple every time we're, we're mourning the death of a loved one. We go to the church and temple, and uh, I think that we're removed from the, the the lived experience, that phrase that you used earlier, and the visceral experience of uh, of mysticism, which is is how religions, you know, really thrive. And there's always this tension between mysticism and bureaucracy. But I, I do think the two can work together. I think psychedelics are one way that, that might be able to happen. Uh, and maybe this is the kind of thing that could re-enchant a faith like Christianity or re-enchant our toxic democracy and our level of civil discourse, which is really at kind of an all-time low, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying. You know, the, I, I think that our country has, has some issues. I'm not saying psychedelics are the answer, but I mean, tapping into something that brings meaning to people's lives and elicit pro-social activities like kindness and being nice to each other and generosity. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, that people in the Hopkins experiments talk about. You know, all this, all this, this, this pro-social behavior that, that results after this awe experience. I mean, that's something I, I can see being, being helpful today. I'm not, I'm not sure what it looks like, but I see something there. I mean, I, I think it's probably the most important problem that we need to solve as a civilization. I mean, I think there's a good argument. It is literally the problem of our generation, where in terms of physical abundance and cl close to full mastery of our environment and manipulation of our environment, I think we're pretty powerful. And it's just like, I think people, but, but people feel lonelier than ever, even with as much materialism and abundance we have in the physical world. So I think there's something to that in terms of the mysticism of the magic of life, where with hypercapitalism, I think specialization of labor, you have really great country level GDP, but it doesn't feel like the individual person is happy, right? Like each of us as cogs in the specialized capitalist system is very, very efficient and the machine is working really well. But I don't, like my sense is that the people, the individual components are not very happy. And something about introducing magic or mysticism, I think is an interesting thought experiment. You know, if we were to, be the pope or the you know the dictator of america like how will we try to solve this problem and if you were you know francis stepped down it's like hey brian is a genius like brian should be pope like I, I this is kind of a fun question and very theoretical question like given what you know from the immortality key like how would you think about incorporating some of the potential ancestral origins of this religion, this institution, 
how would you update this for modernity? That's that's the million dollar question, man. And part of the reason I spent so much time investigating the ancient mysteries is because if there is a legal space for this to come back and there is a legal space, it's called Oregon. It's the first jurisdiction in the world where you're going to have a regulated system of psilocybin, therapeutic psilocybin over the next two years. It's a, it's a true first, right? Since the war on drugs. It's, it's a very big moment. I think NBC News called it a tipping point. Uh, a colleague of mine at the Drug Policy Alliance said that it is the literally, literally the most significant reforms to our nation's failed drug policies in like a generation. Uh, I mean, it's hard to overstate what just happened in Oregon and not just with psilocybin, but decriminalizing all drugs. I mean, so we are in, you know, all new territory here, which means that if you read your Latin and Greek and you think about these ancient mysteries and if any, anything I wrote there is even partially true, the, the, the big if about psychedelics, is there meaning there for us? And, and I think there is. If you look at Eleusis, you see a once in a lifetime event. Uh, you see lots of preparation going into it for anywhere from six to 18 months, maybe longer, under the direction and supervision of mystagogues, people who knew what they were doing, people who'd been initiated. You see a, a nine day, a nine night process culminating in that, in that vision that made all previous seeing seem like blindness, is how Ruck calls it. And then you, you find a community and some integration afterwards. I mean, you know, people are already talking and writing about this stuff, but I think what's, what's missing is that, that, that ancient element and, and the sacredness that was baked into Eleusis. And, some, and you know, to be honest, some of the, um, the community that was baked into the Dionysian mysteries. Uh, they do talk about these groups of people, congregations even, coming together in worship, which is, that's what I see in, in Paleo-Christianity. It's how I end my book. What, what I, I mean, the Jesus that I see, to answer your question again, I see, you know, when I think about early Christianity, I see small groups of people gathering together at home to uh, worship a wine god using a sacrament that was homemade, home brewed, right? A boutique wine. Uh, you didn't go down to your, you know, local uh, wine shop and pick up a bottle. I mean, this was, it was all more homemade and rustic and that, that's what really attracts me. You know, uh, I, I can envision this experience amongst a small group of, of friends and loved ones. Uh, I love the idea of, of preparing a very long time for it in a very serious way. I love the idea of medical professionals being available if need be, but I also like, you know, sacred technicians. I, I love the idea of psychedelic chaplains being trained to guide people through this in a very meaningful way. And like, not just in the laboratory and not just, you know, in, in, in the jungle, but, you know, in, in a way that is welcoming and feels safe to most people who've never tried psychedelics. I mean, if this is your first time, it can be a pretty heady thing. So I think some of those elements should be baked into it if I were Pope Brian. Yeah, no, I, I think all those things seem very, very compelling to me, especially the notion around the decentralization. I feel like if there is another question of our time, it's this centralization of power, authority of the institution versus decentralization. I feel like the internet in a large part enables conversations like these that can be counterculture or, or decentralized. And I feel like the original decentralization that you're talking about, these are like kind of small groups, people coming together, kind of building these communities themselves seems very compelling to what humanity was always like. I don't, I don't think we were evolved to well, I don't know if I want to be a part of a civilization where like there is a God emperor king that just defining things for everyone else. Like, I don't think that's a very American value, right? I think the, well, I think what's very American is this notion of, of people 
decentralized experimenting and creating their own communities bottoms up. That to, that to me seems like the most, one of the most fundamental American values. So I think something like that, I think would be very attractive in, in this day and age. Well, maybe I can enlist your help to help architecture that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, that sounds like a fun journey to rehabilitate or recreate a new spiritual awakening in the 21st century here. So I feel like we could have like another five hours of conversation here, but I do want to be thoughtful of time. So if folks want to learn more, book, the book is out on Amazon, bookstores all around the world. But where do people follow along in terms of just more tactical up-to-speed updates? Are you active on social? I've, I've become more active. I, ha- I had to make the plunge, man. So I am on Twitter and Instagram, and I try and keep it updated as much as I can. All the media, including this, is on my website. Uh, so if you go to theimmortalitykey.com, that'll take you over to the, the website and you can see media and updates. And as soon as I have things to announce about my next book or uh, the docuseries that we're working on or these interesting uh, academic conversations I'm having or these conversations with um, the private sector that I'm having and Jeff will be having, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pop everything there because, I mean, there's, there's a lot happening right now. Uh, so I'd love for people to stay tuned. Yeah, exciting times. So we'll have to have you back on when there's a second conversation queued up for us. Brian, again, an honor. And really, folks, buy this book, read it. At minimum, it's as good as a Dan Brown novel. And, at you know, hopefully you learn something and it kind of changes your perspective on religion, life, and, and, and how we should live. So highly recommended. Again. Brian, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it.